We're going to be in James chapter 2. If you have a copy of the Bible, you can go to James chapter 2 or use the one in the seat back in front of you or an app on your phone. Um, We're going to be in James, uh, actually chapter 2 here today. We're studying this book of James. We're just going through verse by verse, um, looking at what God has for us here. And as you're turning to James chapter 2, I wonder what these things have in common. Okay, listen, and you tell me what these things have in common. A state governor who during the pandemic shut down restaurants and required masking in public is the same governor spotted maskless in a crowded restaurant eating and drinking with other politicians. A school superintendent touting the greatness of their public school system. Meanwhile, her own child is enrolled in an exclusive private school. Or how about a well-known fitness guru an advocate of natural supplements who goes by the name Liver King, who is found out that he's been using steroids all along. Yeah, no kidding. As you look at his physique, what do all these true scenarios have in common? What do they share? They share the same problem, of course, which is an enormous gap between what we say and what we do, right? It is a a cognitive dissonance between our words and our actions. Of course, we have another word for this problem, don't we? That word, of course, is hypocrisy. It's the word hypocrisy. And we love, as a people, to point out hypocrisies, especially in our public figures, right? It's like one of our favorite pastimes to do is pointing out hypocrisy in public figures. We like to do it in as we see the hypocrisy in other people, of course, sadly, shamefully on our part, the word hypocrisy is often the word used to describe Christians, isn't it? Do you know that according to a Barna research group that 85% of non-Christians label Christians as hypocrites? 85% of non-Christians, look at Christians that way. You say, well, that's not fair. That's an unfair label, is it? Is it? Do you know Pew Research uh, recently did an independent study that found that while 63% of Americans still call themselves Christians, only 6% possess a biblical worldview and demonstrate a consistent application of biblical values. What is that if it's not? Hypocrisy. Why is it that we hear stories or have personal experience of knowing people who grew up in the church and yet fell away from the faith or deconstructed their faith altogether? Why is that? I would submit to you that the number one leading factor for why that happens is hypocrisy among Christians. It's people who talk big and walk small whose lives don't reflect the very gospel or the faith that they claim. And friends, I can't say this enough. The stakes could never be higher. The stakes could never be higher in our own homes, in our church family, and in our community, that if we are going to wear the name Christian, that our actions back that up. And that is the problem that James addresses in this passage today. 
If you've been tracking with us through the book of James, you already know that James doesn't pull any punches. I mean, he goes for it. He goes for knockout punch after knockout punch. Every sermon is kind of a looking at us, looking at the own mirror of our soul and seeing what's in here. He's already confronted hypocrisy several times. Remember in chapter one, verse 26, where James says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues or insert a tight rein on their social media profiles or messages, deceive themselves and the religion is worthless, hypocrisy. Last week, Pastor Todd looked at James chapter two, verses one to 13, and we saw James confront hypocrisy in evidence in our favoritism that we can show. You know, how in the world can Christians who believe a gospel message that says all of us are equal at the foot of the cross, yet be the same, very same people who show favoritism? How can it be hypocrisy? And so all of this hypocrisy has sort of been begging the question, and maybe it's a question in your mind, and the question certainly that's in James' mind, and he asks this, verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters? What good is it, my brothers and sisters? If someone claims to have faith and yet has no deeds, can such faith save them? What about you? What do you think of that question? Can a faith like that save? It's a good question, isn't it? It's an uncomfortable question also, isn't it? Now this question and this sermon, by the way, is not meant so that we get out, you know, our sticky notes and write saved and unsaved and go slap them on everybody else's foreheads after the service. That's not the point of it. The point is that we go inward with that question. We do is what, what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Look inside. How do we distinguish between a real faith and a counterfeit faith? Well, James is going to show us three signs of a counterfeit faith. And as we look at those, we can see then in contrast what real faith is all about. Okay, so that's where we're going. So buckle in. If you want to leave, now's your chance, okay? <laughs> Here we go. Sign number one of a counterfeit faith, words without action. Words without action. Now, it's important to note that the question that James is asking here in verse 14 about what good is it, my brothers and sisters, notice he says, if someone what? Can you guys read that? If someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such a faith... That is the claim of Christianity or faith. Can that save them? Do you notice James isn't saying that there are two kinds of faith? You know, there's a, a faith with action and a faith without action. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there is a real faith and then there is just talk of faith. There is just a claim of faith. You see the difference? This is what he's saying. James then uses a relatable scenario to make his argument. Notice what he says in verse 15. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. Now, let's bring this scenario into our own church, shall we? 
It's not hard to imagine because we have an economically diverse church family here. Imagine somebody comes up to you and they're sharing about this incredibly hard time that they're going through right now. Maybe it's unpaid medical expenses that have just put them in debt. They're about to uh, lose their house. They're... uh, Maybe their lights are about to be turned off or they're just, they're just feeling so overwhelmed by a need in their life. And you say to them, man, that's a shame, but cheer up, at least you have your health. You know what, good luck with all that. I'll pray for you and off you go. Doing nothing about the need that they just shared with you. Saying, what is the point of a faith like that? This is his question. You know, words can't warm someone. Sentimentality doesn't help someone who's starving. James says, if there is a cognitive dissonance between what you claim your faith is that you have and what you're doing about it, you better check and make sure that's a real faith because it certainly looks like a counterfeit. Why? Real faith does. Real faith is moved to action in hearing a scenario like this. It should trigger your faith to be put in action, saying we, we can't just have this situation. We need to do something about this. Now, what James is not saying is that every single person who claims to have a need is your personal responsibility to fund them and shelter them and feed them and care for them. One, it's a community. We, we, we do this as a family. We rely on each other. But also we need discernment to make sure that a need is legitimate because there is a kind of helping that hurts. There is a kind of helping that can enable, right? Even Paul had to put some guidelines for this in the church because there's people abusing church, uh, other church members. And Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, for even when we were with you, I gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Here he's saying that there, there needs to be some guidelines in this, but don't miss what James is saying. He's using a simple illustration to make a very simple point, which is faith works. Faith bears fruit. And one of those fruits is certainly serving people in need. This should characterize our lives, just like Jesus in his parable, the Good Samaritan, right? Not just helping people that are part of our own family or our family of faith, certainly that's a priority, but helping anyone who has a need, a stranger, the immigrant, the person who's on the margins, anyone who has need. Our posture, in other words, our posture should be uh, not finding every excuse of why we shouldn't help them, but rather our posture should, should be, why wouldn't I help this person? What, what would stop me from helping this person? Real faith acts, real love does. You can't just say it and not do it. And James' logic checks out in every area of our life, doesn't it? You say, I'm a fitness fanatic, but then you never work out and your Peloton is collecting dust or is being used to like hang wet clothes on it, right? that, that, doesn't, that doesn't fly, that doesn't work. If you say, I love my wife, but then you're, you treat her poorly and you never take her out on a date, that doesn't fly. James is saying the very same thing. If you claim to have faith and yet you have no interest in the Bible, you have no zeal 
for the Lord or to see people come to know Christ. If you have no desire to live a holy life, no concern for justice, no concern for passion and mercy and and grace for other people, you better check your exam results because the diagnosis might be a counterfeit faith. You can't call yourself a Christ follower if you're not following Christ anywhere, right? Real faith acts, real love does. Isn't this why in Hebrews chapter 11 in what we call the the hall of faith, every single one of these faith heroes is described with action? Abel brought by faith and offering. Noah built an ark. Sarah trusted God with her life. Abraham left his home and offered up Isaac. Rahab welcomed the spies and on and on it goes. Abraham and Isaac, in fact, are the very two same people that James uses to give examples of real faith. In fact, James comes to a conclusion by looking at Abraham's faith, and he says this in James 2.24. You see that a person is justified by what they do and not by faith alone. Now, as you read this, if you've been around church for a little while, you should be throwing a flag. You say, wait, wait, hold on, hold on, time out, whistle, blow, wait. This looks like the exact opposite of something that the Apostle, Apostle Paul says somewhere in the Bible. Well, where is that somewhere? Romans 3, 28, when it says, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And when you put those two verses on the screen next to each other, Uh uh-oh, we got a problem, don't we? Any skeptic ought to say, man, see, this is the reason I don't believe anything you guys say. The Bible is full of contradictions. Exhibit A. This is a big problem, isn't it? Oh, good luck with that. Let me say a word of prayer as we close. (laughs) No? All right. Let's address it. Let's take a look at it. I don't think this is a contradiction. I actually think this is a a seeming contradiction, but I hope to argue that actually James and Paul agree and they're saying something, the same thing, but in a different way. You know, there's a danger of ripping verses out of their context. For example, Song of Solomon 7.4 says, your nose is like a tower of Lebanon facing Damascus. And if you said that to someone else, maybe a special someone, they would probably slap you. But this was not meant to be an insult. This was actually meant to be a compliment. It was a a, a beautiful line of poetry from a groom to his new bride. It doesn't work as well in our modern day. This is more like a BC compliment, you know what I'm saying? So don't use that. But that's, that was in the context. It's a compliment, not an insult. See, we, we can't just rip stuff out of the context and then think we know what it's saying. So Paul is saying something in his letter to the Romans and James is saying something in his letter to the Jewish people that sheds some light on this apparent contradiction. And keep in mind, by the way, that the apostle Paul and James are not enemies of the gospel. They were friends of the gospel, partners, guarding and protecting and proclaiming the very same gospel message together. 
Sam Alberry, the theologian and, and writer of a commentary on James, says this, we have to allow for the possibility that James might be offering a corrective, not to Paul himself, but to his followers who have been taking the faith alone teaching in an unwise direction. And I think this, this is my understanding of what's happening here. James is offering a correction to people who are abusing a a, a, a teaching, a, a theology. So to keep this as clear as I can in the short amount of time we have, I'd like to share with you four differences between Paul and James that shed light on this difficult, uh, what seems to be a contradiction, okay? Four differences. The first revolves around their use of the word works. Do you see in the text, they both use the word works. Paul, when he used the word works, he's talking about works of the law, that is the, the Jewish law, laws that you are trying to keep in, in order to earn God's favor. He's addressing that and saying, no, 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 that's not how salvation works. We don't earn God's favor through work. Okay, that's the first thing. Paul is using when, excuse me, James is using the word works to describe deeds done out of gratitude for having received God's favor. Right, this is, we have already have faith. This is working itself out out of an attitude of gratitude. So this is the different in the word works. Paul and James are fighting two different problems in their letters. Paul is fighting legalism. That is the notion that I can keep all these rules in order to be saved. As long as I keep all these rules, I can be saved. James is fighting the opposite problem. James is fighting laxity. That is people who say, it really doesn't matter what I do as long as I believe. Two different problems that they're addressing. Paul and James use the same word justified, but they're using that word in a different context. The word justified, according to Paul, he's using it in the way of saying it's a legal term. This person is declared righteous at the moment of faith. uh, James is using this word to show that righteousness is being demonstrated over the course of someone's life of faith. See the difference? Finally, Paul and James are, have two different object, uh, objectives in their, in their letters. Paul is saying, how do you know Christ? James is saying, how do you show Christ? Are you demonstrating that? Okay? So this is my understanding of how we put these two things together. You know, Paul and James, if you look at other passages of scripture, say the same thing. For example, Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith working through love. Sound like James? Something that James would say as well. The bottom line is that Paul and James aren't contradicting each other. They are coming to the same conclusion from two very different angles. They both agree works don't save, but real faith works. Real faith works. So all of that in, 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 um, in context, here's a diagnosis question, a diagnostic question for ourselves today, okay? Ask yourself this question. Is my faith in Jesus leading me to follow him with actions? Is my faith in Jesus leading me to follow him with actions? How would you answer that question for yourself? All right, sign number two of a counterfeit faith is doctrine without demonstration. Doctrine without demonstration. Verse 18, James says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. 
Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. James addresses a a counter-argument that would go something like this. Well, listen, we're all different, right? You know, there's different kinds of Christians out there. We don't all have to have the same strengths, you know? Some people are like heady Christians. They just like to, you know, study the Bible a lot and, you know, button up their doctrine real tight. And then there's other Christians, you know, who are more of the action people. They don't do a lot of reflecting. They just do a lot of doing, you know? So, you know, you say potato, I say potato. Let's call the whole thing off. And James is saying, that doesn't work. No, 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 you can't wiggle out of this. There's not, you know, it's all in my head Christians and it's all in my actions Christians. There's either true Christians, real Christians or counterfeit. He's pretty black and white on this issue. Notice what he says. He says, after all, look at the demons. Now, can we all agree on this, that when you're being compared to a demon, it's not going well for you, right? It's not something you, you want as a comparison. What does he say about the demons? He says, well, they believe that God is one. Now, this is a very clear reference, in a, especially in a Jewish context, to what's called the great Shema. It was uh, the greatest teaching, doctrinal statement of the Jewish people. It came right out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it was emblematic of having the right doctrine, having the right truth about who God is. What is James saying? He's saying even the demons understand, have the knowledge, the right knowledge of who God is. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher, gave a sermon on this very thing about the the what the demons believe here in James 2.19, he called his sermon, true grace distinguished from the experience of devils. Puritans had like the best sermon titles, by the way. And here's what he said. Devils have been to the greatest divinity school in the universe, heaven itself, and yet all it qualifies them to be is devils. Ooh, that's a mic drop right there. There was no mics, I don't think, back then. Mic drop, right? What is he saying? Demons know the truth. Probably better than us. But that doesn't save them. See, all that knowledge just, in fact, further condemns them. See, we can have right beliefs. We can have right doctrines. And yet, if that doctrine just lives in our heads if it never makes it the 18 inches to our heart and impacts our life, what good is it? All it does is it qualifies us to be on the same level as demons. See, to illustrate that knowing a lot about God isn't what saves us, James uses uses another example of Rahab, uh, an illustration that comes from uh, her story in Joshua chapter 2. In James 2, 25, he says this, in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Who was Rahab? Rahab was about as far from a seminary graduate as you could get. Not only was, James, uh, was Rahab not Jewish, she was, uh, she, she was a Gentile. Not only she was a, she was a Gentile, she was a pagan 
who believed in multiple gods, worshiped multiple gods. Not only that, but she was a prostitute. That's who Rahab was. We don't know much about what she knew. It couldn't have been much, certainly not more than what the demons knew. But yet what she did know about God, what she did trust is that he was a true God and that he saved and that was all she needed. See, what she might have lacked in refined doctrine, she more than made up for in a demonstration of faith and she's commended for it. She helped the Jewish spies. She risked her life. She stood up against her culture and she obeyed the will of God. See, you might know a little about God or you might know a lot about God. You might have the status of Abraham, the great beacon of faith, or you might have the status of Rahab, the prostitute. But the beauty of the gospel is the gospel is for every single person, no matter socioeconomic status, no matter whether you have lived a really rebellious life or really morally buttoned up life, no matter whether you make a lot of money or you make very little money, no matter whether you got your act together, you don't got your act together, no matter whether you've gone to college and graduate school or you've never got out of high school, it is for everyone. And if you know John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not die, but have eternal life. That's all you need to have your life transformed and to be transferred from a terrestrial world to an eternal world forever and ever. So friends, may we be people who study the word. Yes, learn the word because the more you do, the more you fall in love with God, the more you wanna obey him and become like his son, Jesus. But it's not doctrine that saves us. It's how that knowledge becomes trust in action. So here's a diagnostic question. Am I acting in faith upon the knowledge of God that I have? Am I acting in faith upon the knowledge of God that I have, whether that's a lot or little? And if so, how? How am I acting on what I know? That's diagnostic question two. Third uh, sign of a counterfeit faith, and finally, A counterfeit faith is motivated by fear without friendship with God. Fear without friendship with God. Notice again, verse 19. James says, you believe that there is one God. Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? See, the demons believed in the sense that they they knew, they respected the power and the greatness of God of God. They knew the greatness of God. You might know the story of Jesus when um, he came over the, the, the Sea of Galilee. He went to the other side. Mark chapter five, he encounters a man who's demon possessed with a demon called Legion because there were many demons in him. And these demons knew exactly who Jesus was, that he, Jesus was the Messiah, the son of God, something they had clear that the disciples were still a little confused about. But that knowledge of Jesus did not cause them to say, oh, we want to get closer to him. What did it cause them to do? Shudder in fear and dread. In fact, they wanted to get as far away from Jesus as they could. See, more knowledge of God doesn't make you 
closer to God necessarily, what it might do is cause fear. All of their knowledge was only shuddering. See, friends, if our knowledge of God, if the, our understanding of the greatness of his power, if it's only producing fear in our life, all it will do is drive us further and further away from the very heart of God. All it will be is shuddering. We might run away from God and his power through a life of rebellion against his moral law and moral vision of our life. Or we might do it by trying to be very good and just stay out of the gaze of God. You know, just hope God leaves us alone. Either way, it's driven by fear. All it is is shuddering farther and farther away from the very heart of God. See, real faith results in friendship with God. Look at the example here of Abraham who trusted God. Remember when Abraham trusted God to provide a sacrifice when he and his only son Isaac were going up the hill, he trusted that God would provide a sacrifice. Abraham had a healthy fear. He had a reverence of God to be sure. But look what James says in verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called what? God's friend. You see that? See, fear didn't motivate his obedience. Friendship motivated it. Real faith wants to please God out of love because we find God to be lovely. We find him to be worthy of our love and a relationship. And if you are in a healthy relationship, you understand this, right? Because what motivates you to want to do stuff for your friend is not fear, but it's love. You want to celebrate them on their birthday because you love them and you find them lovely to be around. You want to call them when maybe they're going through a hard time. You want to check in on them when life is difficult. You want to stand by their side. You want to just do stuff with them uh, because you want to be with them. In fact, you'll find an, something to do just because you want to be together. This is friendship. This is a healthy friendship. See, unhealthy friendship says, well, I better buy them a gift or they'll stop talking to me. That's not love. That's not friendship, right? That's an unhealthy, dysfunctional relationship. And if you're in a relationship with that, like, check it, you know? Healthy relationships Loving relationships are built on friendships because you find each other lovely. You want to be together. And this is the very same thing when it comes to relationship with God. We're drawn into the heart of God, not away from the heart of God, because we want to spend time with him. We want to spend time in his word, in prayer, a desire to follow him where he's leading us, not out of fear he might strike us with a, light of, a, bolt, a, a bolt of lightning, but rather because we want to be with him. See, I, I think about this dynamic a lot in my story of coming to know Jesus. When I was 18, I grew up in the church. I, I knew all 66 books of the Bible. I could have rattled them off to you at age 18. I could have defended the doctrine of justification. In fact, I knew every single lyric to Jesus Freak by DC Talk, right? Like I was in it, but, but... I was very hard, hard, uh, I was very hard hearted. I was very hard, uh, far from the heart of God. See, I, was, I wasn't motivated by love. I was motivated by fear. I wanted to be as far away from God as possible. I didn't want him messing with my life. And it wasn't until 
I was reading with a mentor through Romans chapter 5 when I came to the stunning heart-deep realization that my sin was joyfully paid for by Jesus in his death on the cross for all of my sin, that he did it out of a rescue mission of love for me, that he demonstrated it, that while I was still a sinner, he died for me. And in that, in that moment, I had an overwhelming sense of his love. And any of that fear, any of that shuddering was replaced by like a big spiritual hug. I just sensed his presence. And not only a sense of his love, but he became lovely to me. So I wanted to pursue him. And my life started on a trajectory of obedience. Not, not perfectly, believe me. A lot of stuff I was holding on to. But he began slowly but surely to break my will and cause me to want to submit to him out of love, not fear. This is how it works. This is a, this is a true faith, a real faith. So ask yourself this diagnostic question. Does my faith demonstrate fear of God or friendship with God? Does my faith demonstrate fear of God? I'm just going through the motions hoping God doesn't see me or I'm running away from him. Or does it demonstrate a closeness drawing to the very heart of God, finding him lovely in your life? So counterfeit faith, three signs, words without action, doctrine without demonstration, fear without friendship. I want you to examine this in your life. We're going to give you a moment to do that. Examine this in your life. What would the evidence in your life suggest? A counterfeit claim of faith or a real faith in your heart? Now listen, some of us have very tender consciences in here, and that's a good thing to have a tender conscience. Anytime a challenge like this comes along to be introspective, we might instantly think about all of our faults. We might instantly think about all the things that we've gotten wrong. Some of us, we are just never too far in our minds from the things that we've gotten wrong. And we might even be questioning, well, maybe I'm not a Christian at all. We can only see our deficiencies and forget that we're actually expressing faith and actions in so many other ways in our life. So don't, don't miss out on that. Allow, allow the Spirit to show you that. But on the other side, there's some of us that have the exact opposite reaction. You know, we just kind of quickly check the box. I'm good. I'm saved. I remember a thing that I did over here. Like, I'm all good. Don't need to think about it. And so wherever you are, don't have a, a superficial assessment of this question. It's an important question. Take the time. Pray about it. Consider it. The root of faith will bear the fruit of faith. The root of faith will bear the fruit of faith. Not always in exactly the same proportion and not always in the same consistency, but it will be there. Let's take a moment. Close your eyes, quiet your heart. Just consider this question for yourself. Do you have a true faith? Examine yourselves to see if there's a genuine faith.
might be two, of, two different kinds of people in this room here today. Some of us, uh, we hear this question, we've just done some soul searching and for us, it's really encouraged our hearts because we know that we know that we know that we are a child of God. Not because we've worked really hard to earn God's favor, but because we've, we've trusted in the gospel of Jesus. And out of that, you see evidence, you see fruit in your life. This is an encouraging time for you to say, yes, I am known by God and I know him. Praise God for that. Be encouraged in your heart, brother or sister, that you know the Lord. There's others of us that are here and maybe as you do this examination, you can't honestly say that you've trusted Jesus Christ as your own personal savior. Yeah, you've been in church, you sang songs, maybe you've prayed prayers. Maybe your parents go to the church or been influential in the church, but, but you personally, you haven't ever really made that your own. You can't really see with clarity a way that you're really following him or trying to pursue him. Maybe for you, if you're honest with yourself, maybe you've just said, you know what? I wanna just, I'm trying to kind of avoid him and do my own thing. If that's you today, if the Lord has shown you that, be encouraged by that. Be encouraged by that because you have an opportunity because the gospel is for everyone. It's for you, friend. The gospel is all about fresh starts and new beginnings. And it's never too late as long as you have breath in your lungs. And so if that's you, you can pray a simple prayer. You can say, God, I've come to the realization that I've never actually trusted in you personally. I believe that Jesus died for me in my place and that he rose again with power to show that we can be with you forever and ever. Lord, forgive my sin. Forgive my hypocrisy. Lord, come into my life and teach me Help me to love you and pursue you with my life as a friend and make you Lord of my life. Transform me from the inside out. If that's you today, if you prayed that prayer, really even thought about praying that, today I wanna encourage you to take the moment to tell someone that. Don't just keep that inside yourself. Tell somebody, maybe somebody you came with. Go out to the, the uh, guest center and tell somebody. Come down front and pr- with, with the prayer team and pray with someone. Tell them. Find a pastor. Find someone and tell them that you made a decision or you're thinking about making that decision so we could help you in your journey. Lord, thank you for this challenge. As hard as this challenge is, as uncomfortable as maybe it even makes us feel at times, we thank you ultimately that you, while we are far from perfect, we're gonna get it wrong, you were perfect in our place. 
because you were sinless, you can forgive sin. Challenge us, transform us because we sat on the teaching of the word today. In Jesus' name, amen.